Welcome to Life Church. We are an ex 242 community, a family on a mission to bring the life of Jesus to Warrington. We hope you're ready to hear what God has to say to you today through His Word and by His Spirit. Right, good morning. Are you ready? Good. Buckle up. You're in for a treat. We're going to go deep in the Word this morning. Amen. My dad might be asleep, but don't let that be a representation of how good the Word is. He just likes a nap. Right. Matthew 13. Probably the most famous parable that Jesus taught, the parable of the sower. Some might argue the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's more famous, but if I was to think of a parable, the first one that would come to mind is the parable of the sower. Now this series, called Pictures of the Kingdom, is designed to teach about the Kingdom of God as it is presented through parables. Why did Jesus pick parables? Because often an image and a story can convey far more, far quickly than a lot of complex words. So Jesus needed to be able to speak to people who were well-educated, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the like, and those who were part of the agrarian society, those who were farmers and so forth, who had no formal education. So a picture, an image, a story could speak on many levels and still get the point across. So Jesus is teaching about his kingdom reign and rule. So the parables of the kingdom, or the pictures of the kingdom, as the title slide instructs us, is how parables express teaching on the kingdom of God. So we're going to go into the parable itself in a moment, but I just want to illustrate a couple of important points about the kingdom of God in general, and then I'm going to explain how the parable of the sower comes into the wider teaching of the kingdom of God. Now, you don't have to turn with me here, but I'm going to read it out to you. Mark chapter 1 verse 15 says this, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Therefore repent and believe the good news. I'm going to read that again because it is very, very, very important. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come. Therefore, repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God is not the activity of God. It is not the people of God. It is not the church. It is not the presence of God. And it is not the realm of God. It's not the activity of God, the people of God, the church, the presence of God, or the realm of God. All of those things exist and are part of God's wider kingdom, but as the, as the phrase the kingdom of God was to be understood by those first century hearers, it is the time when God's kingdom in heaven would come and be established on the earth. That's why in Mark's gospel he makes it clear that he says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come. God was always reigning and ruling. What they expected to see was a season when Messiah would come and establish 
that reign and rule of God completely on the earth. They had been through thousands of years and ups and downs, of ups and downs, of highs and lows, of success and failure within their service of God. But Messiah was supposed to come and help establish God's kingdom on earth. So they were looking for a season. So when John the Baptist, he's standing up, you know, and he's saying, prepare the way, prepare the way, prepare the way. He was preparing for Messiah to come and establish things in the time and the season of God's reign and rule. So we've just celebrated Jubilee. We've celebrated 75 years of the reign and the rule of Elizabeth II. We might, if she was a king, speak of the kingdom of Elizabeth II. And kingdom and reign are actually synonyms in the language of the kingdom of God. You could talk about the kingdom of God or you could talk about the time of the reign of God. And they are the same thing. They're interchangeable terms. But it just doesn't fit with our modern language. In fact, in, in Italian sanat, you will know uh, 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 this, that in Italian, the words reign and rule and kingdom are all the same word. Did you know that, sanat? You speak Italian, fluid Italian? He's looking at me. He's, yes, yes. <laughs> Regno is the Italian word. Regno. But for us in modern language, when we talk about a kingdom, we don't tend to think about time, chronos, season. We tend to think about a person or activity. So the kingdom of God is the time of the reign and the rule of God. If you hear another teacher trying to express it as it's God's presence, it's God's activity, those are things that happen within the time of the reign of the rule of God, but they are not what the kingdom is by definition. So... If the reign and the rule of God was coming and Jesus marches onto the scene and says, I'm here, I've come to bring in the kingdom of God and everyone's going, yes, at last. And then after several years, they don't see any of the changes that they were expecting. And still today, we don't see all of the earth living as if God is reigning and ruling. Let me give you another verse which is incredibly important too. Underline these, write these down if you can. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 8 says, you made, well verse 7 says you made him a little lower than the angels. It's talking about how Christ became, uh, came in the flesh. But then verse 8 says, and subjected everything under his feet. God has subjected how much? Everything under his feet. However, for in subjecting everything to him, he has left nothing that is not subject to him. But as it is, we do not yet see everything subject to him. So the writer of the book of Hebrews, possibly Paul, possibly Barnabas, possibly um, Priscilla, actually, as, as some people suggest, the reason that it's anonymous it's because they didn't want to associate a woman writing with uh, a part of the scriptures. And there's some good credibility to that argument. But the writer of Hebrews is pointing out that just because you don't see everything looking like it's under the reign and the rule of God, doesn't mean that Jesus is not in charge of everything. We are in this intermediate period between God having all supremacy... And yet, at the moment, things don't always look like God is supreme. 
It's kind of like me walking into my house when the kids have their friends over. Technically, I'm in charge. And I say, technically, I'm in charge. It's my house. They're using my electricity. It's my gas in the wintertime that's heating the place. It's my food that they're taking from the cupboards. And yet, if you were to look at those kids playing, you would not think that I was in charge. Because they have their own will. (laughs) They make choices for themselves. But if the police were going to come and complain about the noise, it's my... It's my neck that would be on the line. I couldn't point to Tobias and say, take him away. (laughs) I might try sometimes, but I wouldn't. Okay, so the parable of the sower. Now we're in Matthew 13. How does this fit within this framework I've just expressed to you? So we live between the kingdom of God coming, the season of the reign and the rule of God on earth through his Messiah. We are still yet waiting for all of that to be brought into order, like children running around in the home of their parent. Technically, the parent is in charge, but the kids expressing their will do not subject their will to the parents. But one time Jesus will come. And this parable of the sower is expressing what is going on in the period of time between the coming of Messiah and the return of the Messiah to come and enforce his will on earth as it is in heaven. The parable of the sower expresses the different types of people's response to the reign and the rule of God through the declaration of the kingdom of God, declaration of what we would describe as the gospel. Gospel means good news, and good news is associated with the teaching of the kingdom of God. So this parable is incredibly important because it helps us to understand what's going on. Like if I was to go into that room of kids playing in my house and I was to say, listen up, pay attention, I want you to do this. Some kids might respond. Some kids will ignore me completely. One or two of them might actually start to break away from their activities and start to try and find out exactly what it is that I want to achieve and begin to do that on my behalf. Now, with kids, of course, the majority wouldn't. But you would get different responses to me coming in the room and giving instructions. It would reveal the heart and the maturity of the child in response to my voice. Now, some kids get on board later. Some kids are early adopters with their parents' instructions. They jump straight to it, and others, they have to be dragged into submission. And Jesus is talking here about different responses. Some people will not respond at all. Some people will respond quickly, but they haven't got the character and the root in order to go on with that word and produce something with it. Some kids or some people, using my illustration interchangeably here, Some will respond for a while and seem to make good ground and then get distracted. Their head will go on to something else, like the Xbox will kind of catch their eye and they'll drift off in that direction and they'll forget what you said to them. So the parable of the sower is capturing the different types of responses that people have to the gospel of the kingdom of God. Now the challenge, therefore would be to think, well, how do I make sure that I'm one of those kids, to use that metaphor again of the parent and the child in the house, how do I make sure I'm one of the kids who's doing what it's supposed to be doing? How do I respond? And that's going to be explained now as we read this through. So, 
Verse 1 of the parable of the sower. Jesus says, On the day when Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea, such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat, sat down, and while the whole crowd stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, Consider the sower who went out to sow. As he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it didn't have much soil, and it grew up quickly since the soil wasn't deep. But when the sun came up and it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it. And still other fell on the good ground and produced fruit, some a hundred, some sixty, some thirty times that which, times that which was sown. Let anyone who has ears listen. Let me read on a bit now, because the next couple of verses are very important again. Then the disciples came up to him and asked, Why are you speaking to them in parables? He answered, Because the secrets of the kingdom of God have been given to you for now, for you to know, but it has not been given to them. And here's verse 12, where we're going to begin our uh, delve into the parable of the sower more deeply. For whoever has will be given, it, uh, more will be given to him or her, and he will have more than enough. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away. Okay, Jesus seems to be speaking in a bit of a riddle. But he wants to, in response to the question of his disciples, explain to them what the missing link is. He's kind of inviting them to, to ask a question. So he says, whoever has, there's something you can possess, the result of which you will get even more. And there's something that you might not have. So even when you do have something, even what you have will be gone. Okay. Jesus is kind of inviting people to fill in the blanks. What is it? What is that thing that I can have and I can get more? But if I don't have it, even when I get something, I'll end up losing it. Is basically what he's saying. I believe it's best expressed like this, because I'll apply it to the parable in the moment. Whoever has the right spiritual attitude of mind to keep their life suitable for growth, more will be given to him or to her, and they will have more than enough. But whoever does not have the right spiritual attitude of mind to keep their life suitable to growth, even what they have will be taken away from them by the things that are noted in the parable. What Jesus is talking about is not an object of something that's missing or present. It's an attitude of heart to deal with the ground. To deal with the place where the word, the message of the kingdom lands and buries and produces fruit. The seed is the same. The sower is the same. The variable is the ground. It's the ground that makes the difference. Now, in one way, this kind of explains just what happened with the preaching of the gospel. Some people respond, some people don't respond. But I do believe there is a place for us as believers to ask ourselves the question, we hope or assume kind of sometimes that we are those, that good ground that produces 160 or 30 fold. But that we have the right heart and attitude that if we did have thorns, we wouldn't let them grow up and choke us. 
And if we did have hardness in our hearts, we wouldn't let it stop the word of being active in our lives. And if we did have any shallowness or stoniness in us, that we wouldn't allow that to stop the word taking root. Because if you have the right spiritual heart and mind and attitude, you can make sure that the ground is broken up, all the hardness, any paving that is on top of the hard ground can be dealt with. Sometimes God has to use a jackhammer to do it. Events and trauma have a way of breaking up the really hard ground. I don't think God wants it that way, but sometimes it's trauma that comes through like a sledgehammer and goes bang. You think, why did God let me feel that pain? Because he had to break the surface and there was a lot of hardness there. If he didn't do that, it wouldn't be broken up. And if it wasn't broken up, the sea can't do its job. So Jesus is inviting people to think through this parable, through what seems kind of like a riddle, to say to them, you need to make sure for your part, you are part of the good ground. And you will be part of the good ground, not just because you are specially elected and chosen to be good, but because you evidence that through the way that you deal with the stuff that could be a problem to your growth. There's an accountability in that to say to us, what are you doing with the ground, the heart, the life, the attitude of mind? Are you set up for growth or are you still kind of ticking along and just assuming the seed will produce something in you without any agreement or sense of buy-in from you? So there can be hard ground, and we'll move through these quite quickly because I think it's more important that we pray at the end. Someone who has just... You meet this kind of person sometimes when you preach the gospel. Neil and Sean Conlon are over at Chapelford at the moment. You know, if they were to share with some people, their instant response is no, no. They don't even want to listen. They just, it's just no. It's just no. But also as Christians, sometimes when, when a certain teaching comes that would potentially kind of hit a nerve, our response is just no, no. Maybe somebody who has had issues with a parent growing up and the preacher comes and talks about how God wants to be our parent and he wants to love on us. And, it's, and you recognize on some subconscious or conscious level that this could hurt. It just, you batten down the hatches, you close yourself off and you push it away and you put all the guards in place that you think that teaching is just not going to come through. The teaching that doesn't arrive in your heart will not produce fruit in your life. And if we become guarded and hard against certain teaching within the scripture, I'm not just talking about the latest fad from the preacher on God TV. I'm talking about the, the certain parts of scripture. We say, well, I like this bit of scripture, but this bit will touch on a nerve. I'm not going to touch that. What doesn't touch your heart will not change your life. And so sometimes we have to submit the hard ground to God and say, God, will you break through in this area? Because while it remains hard, you remain inactive. And there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with the sower. There's nothing wrong with the seed. It can do its job. It's down to you whether you have the right heart and mind and attitude to make that ground available to God. So the question comes, where is your heart hard towards the things of God? 
And my, my experience has been sometimes people can be hard in one aspect of their lives and quite soft in another. I don't know quite how that all works. Often if someone is really, really hard, it will have a hardness that, that kind of uh, affects many, many areas. But you can find people who are well, willing to serve and to help and to do those kind of really kind works of service. But then if you want to kind of get onto the surface of their life, they're like, no, 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 don't go there. Just don't get out of my space. And find you respect people's boundaries. That's, that's okay. But you, you recognize after a while that sometimes you may have just touched on something and people are happy to be soft and supple and serve to a point, but there's an area that they've closed off in their heart and life to God, to his word, and to the potential of the kingdom. And where the seed doesn't go, the seed can't grow. So we have to pray over and think over what are those areas that we shut off and harden ourselves to. Okay. The next ground, stony ground. This ground is, is given as an example in, in two ways. First of all, because of its, its shallowness. And that's why weeds often grow quicker than plants, because plants go deep and weeds can exist in a, in a shallower sort of soil. But the stoniness here as well, although that has to do with the imagery of shallowness, there might not always be hardness in the heart or in the mind or the attitude of somebody, but there can be lumps and things which just are allowed to exist. Not so hard that the seed can't get in, but those lumps that keep them immature and therefore shallow. And one of the other challenges I've found in pastoral life and counselling is that not all of those lumps and issues always seem to be obviously lumps and issues. Christians have great ways of relabeling their issues as virtues. It's true. I've met very many people who are desperate to serve the Lord and are really deep down, out just to serve their self-advancement. I'm not looking, I have to be careful, I'm looking at Dave here because I'm thinking, gosh, everyone thinks, who's he looking at? It's not me. My motive's pure, mate. <laughs> Dave knows I don't think that of him, that's why I felt I was able to look in that direction. Or we have issues with judgmentalism and perfectionism, but we just say we're, we're, we're campaigners for God's holiness. We might just say that we are committed to, 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 to kind of um, self-leadership and to setting boundaries when really we're just unteachable and stubborn. We lack humility, grace. We like to think that I give myself to the study of the word, which is basically saying that I prefer my opinion to yours. So I could go on many, many more examples uh, deep into this. But the, the point is that not all of those rocks and that shallowness looks obvious. Maybe to us it feels quite presentable and okay. But time will tell as to whether we produce fruit, uh, fruit and a harvest or we don't. We need to pray about that too. Then the weedy ground. I said in our operations team on Friday, I'm going to use this phrase and I'm going to use it now. 
If you want to be a leader, you've got to be a weeder. Leaders are weeders. Because if you want to grow and have something to offer everybody else, you've got to do the job of weeding in your own heart and life. And the people in this category of ground, they seem to go great guns for a while, but then they just get distracted. Oh yeah, I know I could be serving in this, that and the other for the Lord, but I just need to give more time to this or that or the other. And those things by themselves aren't wrong, but it only takes a few things over time for, to find the cumulative effect is that we've gone a long way off track and we've given our time and money and energy to stuff that really isn't serving God's purpose for our life. It's just nice. It's comfortable. We're happy. God keep us from being comfortable and happy. Not people go, amen to that sort of, hang on, hang on, not sure I agree with that. Happy maybe, but comfortable. So comfortable that it robs us of the opportunity to keep pressing forward into what God has next. We don't want comfort to be complacency. Maybe that's a better way of expressing it. So leaders need to be weeders. And we need to watch our desires, watch our priorities, watch how Netflix just creeps in and just takes that little bit too much time that it becomes your de facto way of relaxing to the detriment of your spiritual disciplines. All of these things, subtle ways where weeds grow and growth is choked in us. But then the final thing, and this is where we come into land, we want to be part of that good ground. One that produces 160 or 30-fold that which was sown. Let me just finish with this other verse of Scripture in Genesis 26. When I read this, I thought, where does this formula come from? Where does this breakdown of results have its origin. There's this interesting phrase, I think, which doesn't clarify exactly why Jesus used all of these, these different uh, grades of, of measure, but it certainly talks about the hundredfold. So in Genesis 26, talking about Isaac and Isaac taking care of um, the sheep and the flock. In Genesis 26, verse 12, it says, Isaac sowed seed in that land. Listen to that. Isaac sowed seed in that land. And in that year, he reaped a hundred times what was sown. Isaac sowed seed. He reaps a hundredfold return. And it says this, the Lord had blessed him. It's almost a saying that fruitfulness and blessing are part of the same thing. If you want to consider yourself blessed, then you're fruitful because the fruit that you're producing is an evidence of the blessing in the hand of God upon you. And the Israelites, maybe when they hear this parable, not all of them maybe, but some of them will be thinking, don't I kind of detect faint echoes of what went on with Isaac in this? Maybe they went to the local rabbi and said, let's get a look at the Torah a minute. Let me just flick through. I think I've seen that somewhere before. I heard that somewhere before. So I think possibly here, Genesis 26, 12, Isaac sowed seed in the land, and in that year he reaped a hundred times that which was sown. 
Jesus is saying, if you want to carry that same blessing that our nation has carried right from our patriarchs, right from our forefathers, you need to be part of that land that can produce that harvest with blessing in it. And how do we do that? We do that right right where Jesus says, we need to have the right spiritual attitude of mind to keep our life suitable for growth. Growth will happen when we cooperate with God's work in us. That's when work will happen. So we're just going to draw this to a close here and just just have a couple of moments of prayer. I've given you a lot of information this morning. But in order for that information to move to activation, your cooperation is required. I didn't mean to be kind of like some sort of African-American preacher there. Dab my head like T.D. Jakes. We need to cooperate with God. Jesus is saying, I believe, through that parable, you have jurisdiction over the ground. God has jurisdiction over you, but you have jurisdiction over your heart and life and attitude right now. And in this in-between phase between the coming of the Messiah and his return as an all-conquering king, we have this period in the middle where we get to take ownership of our lives and be responsible for that message of the kingdom of God. One day it will be enforced upon the world. In the meantime, it is down to you and to I as to how much we cooperate with the kingdom of God. And that's what God's waiting on, the response of the heart because there are no rewards for imposed criteria. Your only reward is through your cooperation, otherwise you had no recognition, because you had no part in it. You haven't part in your salvation, but you do have a part in how you handle that word, how you steward the word of God, and go on to produce some harvest and fruit. Let's pray. I'm not sure which of those grounds is most pertinent to you, which of those feels like it resonates most strongly with you, maybe parts of all of them. I think probably if I reflected on my life more critically than just in the preparation for this message, I could probably see seasons of my life where one or more of those ground were more dominant in my experience. Times when I was just really, really hard to the things of God. Times when I thought I was open to the things of God, but probably quite shallow and lumpy and stony. And other times I've allowed myself to get distracted, give the weeds a chance. But we need the work of the Holy Spirit, the challenge, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, just to make sure we are, let's believe for a hundredfold. Let's believe for the blessing of Isaac upon our lives, that we could be those hundredfold return believers. Yeah, Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word, your teaching. We thank you, Jesus, for the instruction that you give us about how we can have a life that is fruitful. Before you return, that in such a way that our lives yield a harvest of plenty of blessing to offer back to you. And we invite you, Holy Spirit, to challenge, to convict, to confront, to get under our surface, to point out, to hone in and focus us on those areas where there are problems. The lumpy parts, the stony parts, the shallow parts, the hard parts and the thorny parts. 
God, we want none of that. We want to carry that blessing that Isaac carried. We want that hundredfold return on the investment of your kingdom teaching into our lives. And so we just present ourselves to you, Father, we ask that by your grace, with your love and your kindness, that you would help us to see where we have room to grow and the things that we need to surrender again to you and invite you to soften, to remove, and to deepen in us. We ask you to do this, Lord God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We've come to the end of this week's message. We hope you've been impacted and inspired. Keep up to date with everything that's happening by visiting our website at www.lifechurchwarranty.com. Oh,